Welcome back to the Fit Fizz podcast, everybody. My guest today is Kevin Jackson, who is going to share a lot of information on his research that he's done on concussions and traumatic brain injuries. But before I do his full introduction, in case this is your first time listening, I'm Kelly Wilson. I'm the owner of FitFizzStudio.com, and I am a personal trainer, nutrition coach, behavior change specialist, autoimmune disease educator, and I've worked in the health and fitness industry for over 25 years. I am here to hold you to new standards of healing, personal growth, and behavior change, and transformation, and to give you knowledge for making the smartest choices for your own health. The information shared is for educational and informational purposes only. Nothing should be interpreted as as an intent to diagnose, treat, cure, heal, or prescribe. Okay, so last week, I shared some super basic information about concussions, but today, you're going to get even better information with my guest expert, the very humble, very knowledgeable, Dr. Kevin Jackson. He has a doctorate in animal science with a specialization in reproductive physiology. Kevin is currently the clinical program manager where he currently works, which we'll keep top secret. But Kevin, thank you so much for making time to talk to us today. Thank you very much for having me. I got to tell everybody how we met and I cannot believe it was basically in a month or so, it's going to be 20 whole years ago. We met at a fitness conference called Midwest Fit Fest. (laughs) It was being hosted by Northern Illinois University where I was, uh, I already graduated, but I was still working there as a fitness instructor. And we had this uh, conference for uh, fitness instructors from all over the Midwest. And it turned out to be a huge snowstorm that weekend, but Kevin and his group of fitness instructors from U of I managed to make it. I know, I remember how hard it snowed that weekend and everyone was just like, it was a mess, right? Yeah, it was. <laughs> and um, so that's how we met at the fitness conference. So um, we're going to get into more uh, football and concussion stuff, but you also have fitness certifications. So tell everybody about how you used to teach fitness classes. It was, um, the biggest thing about it, about teaching fitness classes is when you were uh, playing football in college, obviously, um, you have that mentality to continue on. So when I went to grad school, I didn't have that competitive edge as I did while I was playing sports. I wanted to do something. So I got into teaching fitness. Um, I started off with uh, aquatics, um, looking at water workouts because I had bad knees um, and I wanted to do something for myself. And it's funny that um, I was doing a water workout and one of the instructors, but who the head instructor was, saw me doing a workout and asked would I be interested in teaching mm-hmm. a sports conditioning class in the water. Um, and that started my actually fitness career. <laughs> uh, she saw me doing a workout that wasn't, you know, that was unusual that she's never seen before. And she thought that would be a great class to teach. So I started from there and Went from teaching sports conditioning in the water and then teaching spin class um, afterwards. Oh, that's right. I forgot you taught spinning too. And I know all your students loved you. I remember you used to tell me stories, but um, that's pretty cool that you, you, so he's got all this fitness experience too. And not only that, but like you were saying with football, you played football at U of I. So uh, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, it was a fun experience. Um, um, great time. Uh, we had some great years there. I uh, played running back. And so obviously me playing the sport that I got into years later, how I got back to working with athletics is a whole nother story that we can talk about maybe on another podcast, if not this okay. one. Yeah. Uh, 
Um, but it came back, uh, you know, tenfold when I got into the actual concussion research. It took me about 15 years to get back from when I left football the last time I played to when I got back into working with athletes. Um, but no, funny, playing football was very interesting. I think some of the, the rules and regulations that we had when I was playing are completely different now um, in this yeah. new day how you how you manage concussions and head injuries that's actually that was actually my next question yeah because it wasn't taken nearly as seriously back then even just 20 years ago right no it, it wasn't it wasn't as big like I tell people now like it's funny that you you don't see the smelling salts on the sideline anymore because you know people get done you know dings all the time when we were playing as, as when I was younger mm-hmm. um it was funny that you see now, you don't see those things anymore. If you see somebody who's wobbly, you don't see them getting them the little sideline things that you do to, to wake them up. Mm-hmm. They take them in the back and that's it. They're done for the day um, because we know that there's a long-term complication with going right back out there or, you know, second impact syndrome that you can have if somebody has a concussion and they go back out there trying to, you know, fix themselves and to balance themselves and be back in a normal conditioning. You know, sometimes you can get over and overcome it just from the adrenaline in your body. But I think that, part of it is is that you're putting yourself in danger for another impact in that same area which could be worse than the first impact yeah because it used to just kind of be like how many fingers am i holding up and you're okay okay toughen up get back out there but now it's good that it's taken more seriously and i'm sure you've seen your fair share of concussions from playing and working with athletes but have you ever had a concussion back then i will say the technical term no but i think that I look back on it, yes, I've had a couple probably where you lost, yeah. I wouldn't say consciousness where you're un, you know, unconscious, where you, for a minute, you have to catch your brain, catch your wits and say, okay, what happened? What just happened in the last play? Like you're not, you're going through the motions. Um, and yeah. so that, I think that's the biggest part is because you're so trained and doing something, you can go through the motions and not remember, you didn't do the last three plays off of you thinking about it. You just went through the motions going through the last two plays. You hear something and you react to it. Mm-hmm. Um, that muscle memory is pretty good in athletes um, in that time. So when you do get a concussion, you're, you're really concerned about he can do the normal routines because he knows them like the back of his hand. It's the thing trying to teach him something new is when you realize that person has an issue with his brain. Right. So, you know, even though, you know, maybe you weren't officially diagnosed, especially because it wasn't taken as seriously back then, but you no doubt took some pretty hard hits, I'm sure. Yeah, we all did. I think that's, uh, it's, it's funny that we talk about this and uh, I'll quick story here. Sure. So the, 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 the first time I actually realized I had a, a ding was, and it's funny, he's in space right now. Uh, Mike Hopkins is, uh, Mike Hopkins, the astronaut that just went up in space. Cool. Was a teammate of mine in college and um, he played defense, I played offense. And I think I ran a play and he had hit me to the point where I was like, I didn't know I was, you know, didn't remember the play. He just started laughing. That's the only thing I remember from that play is him laughing after the hit. Oh my God. I'm joking about him to this day. Me and him still joking about that to this day. I, said, I still don't have any idea what happened. What did I do to you to hit me like that? It was practice. We were practicing. Oh my gosh. And he remembers that exact moment too. It is just funny because it was it was a hit because he got in trouble to play before. I ran the play before. Oh, okay. <laughs> Run it again. So you're trying to be Mr. Fancy now. And- <laughs> So he said, I'm going to show you what Mr. Fancy does. Because he, <laughs> he was a senior, I think, when I was a sophomore. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, that is a good story. Oh, my gosh. I have no, I cannot even imagine what it must be like to be hit that hard. I do not know. But so 
like you were saying, you know, somehow your career path led you to uh, circle back around to working with concussions and you developed some really cool stuff, which I'm going to let you tell everybody about. But how did that happen? Was it pure coincidence or you just saw an opportunity or how did that happen? Well, that was, a, like I said, luck of the draw. Um, I think when I left, I had been working in reproductive physiology for almost 15, 16 years. I was at the University of Chicago. Well, my PhD mentor called me and said, hey, this guy wants to develop an animal model um, looking at not even brain injuries in, 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 uh, in animals, but he wanted to do MRI assessments of how the brain works in animals and cooling the brain in animals. So he wanted me to help design, out of my animal science degree, design an animal model where we can look at um, either pigs or rats or whatever animal we were going to use mm-hmm. um, to look at how brain cooling affects, you know, parts of their brain and what happens when their brain is cooled. Um, and at that same time, they were already working on, they already had a cooling helmet that they were using. Um, they were going to use some military personnel and they had just gotten a grant approved from the FD, uh, from the government, mm-hmm. a military grant, and they were going to use it in, um, military for blast injuries. If you think about a blast injury, they were going to use it in you think about triage, getting the person back with this cooling helmet that they, that they had was uh, battery operated. You can pick it out in the field and if somebody had a blast injury, you can put it on them and it can last up to six hours on batteries, mm-hmm. um, being able before they can get back to the triage unit. And so when I started looking into it more, I said a lot of blast injuries are similar to what athletes feel they have in concussions, uh, mm-hmm. but nobody's ever looked at post-cooling an athlete. I mean, they've looked at it, but they haven't really examined it as a post-secondary way of treating athletes. And you've seen it over and over again. You see athletes putting ice on the back of their heads, or they put athletes in dark rooms after a, a concussion episode. And so this cooling helmet was a great idea for, for me to say, well, how can, what is out there now that it's being used? And it wasn't anything out there at this time in about 2011. So we tried to introduce this system as a way of not saying stopping the concussion or making you heal faster. Mm-hmm. I can get a little bit more into the details of it in, in a little bit more. Uh, but more of it was looking at the temperature of the brain. We never really talk about brain temperature and how it affects certain aspects of how you function. And everybody who's had a heat stroke, if you know how you feel when you're hot and you're really trying to perform an athletic activity, you, you're less in your time of your activity because your body's so hot trying to get rid of the heat that it's hard for you to function. Well, concussions and heat strokes are similar in certain ways in how your brain functions. So part of what I wanted to work with, what the neurosurgeon I was working with is, is can we take away some of that heat stress after an injury versus worrying about the injury itself? Is your brain's trying to function on, you know, if you know how your brain works, it's trying to do all these multitude and high out, you know, multitude things at one time. Mm-hmm. Well, if it's trying to get rid of the heat and trying to fix the injury, it's not going to be to do, be able to do either one of them sufficient. So if we can help it out by taking some away the heat with the cooling aspects of it, could it help heal your brain? Not say faster to get you back on the field, but can we catch it in a point where it takes away some of the long-term aspects? Mm-hmm. So that's just wrapped up in a small little shell there. So basically, let me make sure I'm understanding this right. So you said there really had not been research on the temperature of the brain and the cooling effects before you really dove into it? There wasn't a lot. I mean, if they, people have wow. used cooling, you know, they, they say hypothermia, you know, the temperature regulated hypothermia and they've used it in hospital settings, not for concussions and sports related. So you got to okay. look at it from that perspective, use it in a hospital setting for more dramatic injuries um, like car wrecks or, 
okay. uh, blow up your head from other aspects and falling off your bike and running into a wall or something like that in a hospital setting. But the thing about a hospital setting um, is what you run into is when people have mild concussions or head injuries, most people don't go to the hospital. You got to think about it. If you bump yeah. your head on the cabinet and you see stars, those stars weren't made up out of nowhere. You had obviously a small traumatic brain injury. It may not be big enough for you to want to have to go to the hospital, but you did have a mild concussion and you have to think about it from that standpoint. And most people don't go to the hospital for that. So mm -hmm. when most people finally do go to the hospital, it's been from persistent, you know, that injury, you might've bumped your head, but you're still having some lingering effects. But by that time we've missed that window of opportunity we call uh, where it's critical to figure out if, you did it on, you know, you had bumped your head at 8 a.m., but you go to the hospital until, you know, three days later, yeah. that window of opportunity may have been missed. Your brain is starting to function to try to heal itself in a different way. But if we can catch it in athletics and the sports world, we can see the athlete having a concussion right then and there. We can try to treat it as soon as possible. Yeah. So you have to look at it that it's, it was used and it's been treated and, and it's been, you know, well looked at, especially when you think about um, cooling and the aspects of hypothermia for heart attacks, uh, you know, trying to cool your brain down. Uh, seeing people going to the hospital, they usually get cooling through the leg vein, um, get deep, deep into this, but they usually get cooling going to hospitals like a heart attack or a stroke because we're trying to stop your brain from doing a lot of different things and trying to calm the person down. Yeah, that is so interesting. I remember when, uh, could you tell us just like big picture, how long did this whole take from when you started having the talks about this cooling helmet until it fully came to fruition? It was years. Right? Um, it took some years. I mean, it took, well, they had the helmet already in hand when I first came on board and they okay. had, um, this is like 2010 when I joined the staff. Um, okay. I was working on a development animal model and then I started looking more into the cooling helmet because he said, we, we'll worry about that later. And I said, well, there's a lot more we can do with this cooling helmet than just blast injuries in the military. Now, the neurosurgeon I was working with what, isn't a big sports person. So he didn't know, he didn't have any idea how sport things work, like how we sit in cold, cold baths. He had no idea about any of that stuff. So oh, wow. him looking at it from a perspective of the military, he looked at it as a neurosurgeon. They know they have blast injuries. He's seen, you know, people come in, but he never looked at it from the sports world of, how we use cooling as athletes, um, especially sitting in cold baths. If you're being athlete out there knows, you know how cold that feels. Mm -hmm. um, but your body usually only reacts within 15 to 20 minutes. If you notice you've been in cold bath, it starts to warm up after 20 minutes. You can, if you can last that long. Yeah. Um, if your body reacts to cooling yourself down first. It's going to protect the and the major organs. Okay. Um, cool the head and neck. It's a little different how it trains itself to cool itself. And okay. That is so interesting. I remember when it was, I'm sure it was like in the later stages of all of it, when you were sending me pictures and articles and I just thought it, I was, I thought it was so cool. I was sharing it with everybody. Um, so tell, explain to everybody um, what it would look like, what it looks like visually. So, there, so there, after we started doing the first helmet, um, we started getting company that started sending us left and right helmets left. I, I probably evaluated about five or six different cooling helmet types. The one we have is, is, is designed from, um, so the guy who designed this is Bill Elkins, and he designed spacesuits in the early 50s and 60s that are the Smithsonian now. So the spacesuit design was one of the main things that he used in this cool, the first cooling helmet we used, which was the one that is controlled and has a pressurized system um, where it pushes cold air in and takes the 
the, the warm air off the brain and brings it back down into it into the unit. So it just has a you know a system where you are constantly putting cool air um, on top of the head. Mm-hmm. Um, the design was um, looks like a I'm trying to think like a skull cap, like in a sense mm-hmm. you're putting on. But one of them, it looks like a little skull cap that you can, it has, you know, cords coming out of it for, you know, putting cold air in, putting cold air out, taking warm air off mm-hmm. the head. Um, I don't have a picture to show you right now. I could, um, but it's just like a skull cap that you would put on the head. It's really tight to the skull and you want to be able to have kind of connections with the forehead, back of the neck, and it goes around the ears. So you want to try to have connections where you have some skin exposed, where you can put this on. Now, when they designed this for military personnel, most military personnel have short hair, um, but you have a better contact and you you can wet the hair to make it a little bit cooler. Um, so that was one of the first designs that they had. Uh, then we had another cooling helmet. So that was Bill Elkins uh, system um, okay. called the Wilkins unit. And then we started looking with working with cryo helmet, which is another company that they have what I call a fancy ice bag for the head. And the way they designed the helmet was similar to the Wilkins unit, but it wasn't a, you know, continuous cooling flow. It was more of you take it out of the freezer, you can put it on your head and wrap it around your neck and it's similar to the way it was. And it lasts for about 40 minutes to an hour, depends on how hot you are. Okay. And you put it back in the freezer and use it on a repetitive basis. Um, so that that's, those are the two units that I mainly worked with um, over the years. That is so cool. So if you happen to have some pictures or links that you can share, I'd love to put those on my website and then everybody can go look at them if they want to. Yes, I'll, I'll send you the link. Um, okay, great. Um, so let's talk about, uh, well, actually, no, let me ask you this. So where, what is the status of these cooling helmets now? Do people have access to them or is it still being developed there's in other ways? There's still research being done. Uh, Penn State had a, uh, they worked with a couple of Penn State University, um, have worked with some of the cooling helmets and developing some projects using MR, you know, looking at balance and, and and how a person walks after an injury. Mm-hmm. Um, we've worked at it. Um, so there's still projects going on, working with the cooling device and looking at different ways to use it. Um, you haven't heard a lot about it in these last years because you haven't heard a lot about concussions and head injuries as it was probably five or six years ago. Uh-huh. Um, you heard about it left and right about, they're always worried about these long-term things. Um, a lot of the things that I got interested in, you know, started to expound beyond just the cooling helmet and athletes looking at long-term health, and were we looking at the right athletes? You know, everybody always thinks about football, and that's the worst sport ever. We never talk about all the other sports, all the other aspects of when you can get head injuries in. And so I started focusing on swimming and diving. You know, you never, you don't hit the water, right? cheerleading, gymnastics, yeah. um, bull riding. I, I'm, I'm even interested in construction workers who do jackhammer because that jarring of your brain over a longer period of time has to have an effect on how your brain reacts to certain things. Yeah. And you have the same similar, you know, components that are similar to athletes when they get to the 30s and 40s. Do they have some of the same applications as far as looking at how their brain is handled that, you know, that stress? It doesn't mean you have a one concussive blow, but that repetitive jarring over a longer period of time doing construction or doing military personnel who shoot, you know, over the shoulder arm rockets or mm. you know, tanks. You know, so you have to look at it from you know, everybody thinks about football is the, the worst sport ever, but you have to think about you can doing anything. Um, yeah, that is such a good point. Um, yeah, like the jackhammers, I never would have thought of that, but that makes a lot of sense. 
because um, your your brain's just certainly not going to be as stable if you're having that kind of motion constantly. Um, so, like for example, I remember a few years ago, maybe two or three years ago, one of my nephews had he had a fall, and I can't even remember how it happened. I should have asked before we recorded, but he hit his head pretty hard. My sister was like really concerned. They immediately took him to the emergency room. And when they came back, they said, okay, they said that he didn't have a concussion, but how do they, how do they know? Like, how do you know? No, because it seems very vague to me. Well, they have certain tests that you can run, um, especially when you go into the hospital, obviously if they had a hard enough hit, the first thing you try to do is make sure there's no brain, you know, their brain's not bleeding. So they most going to do a CAT scan or MRI. Okay. to make sure that they can tell that that isn't, but the, the biggest thing that they try to do is, is where his mental awareness is at. You know, can he, is he sleepy? Is he following, you know, your, your hand signals? Okay. Can he count backwards a certain way? Um, as you remember months, the biggest thing when the, in that type of setting, especially that is how well do you know your kids? How well do you know the person you, because that's mm. for me being a scientist, you know how they normally would perform. Is this their normal behavior? Or this just, you know, it's hard for a person to come in. If I'm a doctor, fresh come in, I can do all the typical signs that I can do to test you. Yeah. But if I don't know this person, I can't say this is his normal state or this is a you know a different state that he's normally seeing. I could do all the tests to say he's scoring this. He's saying he have he's you know he falls within a, a, a range. Whether it's you know his eyes are a little bit loopy or he's not responding very well. It's you know so you take those measurements as far as a doctor. Mm-hmm. And that's where you try to assess to say if they've had some type of concussion or mild injury. Um, but that's as far as we can go. So you know, the athlete, you know, in the athletic world, we do, they have baseline assessments, which you don't get in the normal, you know, general population. Mm-hmm. Well, I can take an assessment before you start your activities that year. So if you're playing football, you usually get it done before you start the season. And if you have a concussion, I can compare your baseline assessment to whatever you had after that concussion. And I can tell, well, he was at oh. nine or his concussion, but now he's, he's at about six or seven. So now he's, I know he's not functioning normal. So I can say, okay. you're not at the level you were before. And so let's wait, let's try to wait till you get back to that point. And that's part of what, you know, working in the athletic world and the military world is you can get these baseline assessments that we don't normally get in the general population. I see. That's really smart. Is that pretty standard for a lot of like football teams and military now where they, they take that ahead of time when they know everyone's healthy. So they have something to compare it to. That is standard across the board for most, yeah, most athletics and most sports. Oh, that is so interesting. Cool. Makes a lot of sense. Um, so let's say, you know, average everyday human, like, you know, like you were saying, it can happen in gymnastics, cheerleading, swimming, diving, sports, or just accidents at home or unfortunately car accidents. So let's say, you're with somebody, you know, you're, you don't have, uh, you know, football trainers on the sidelines ready to tend to you. So let's say somebody just has an accident. What, what should people do if they see somebody hit their head and they're just like, oh my gosh, this might be serious. What do I do? Um, the first thing is to be calm, keep, keep yourself calm in that situation, but also try to find out, you know, how hard that person hit. Do they feel any pain? Do they feel any sharpness? If anything, depending on how hard you saw that, like they bumped their head into a cabinet, not too hard, but if they, you saw them fall off their bike and they ran to the back of a car, depending on the age of the kid, you know, they might have a skull fracture. So the biggest thing is if that's the point where you see them acting, they're in a lot of constant pain, even after a few hours, 
you might want to take them to the ER, you know, within a few hours, you know, because if they keep playing, the, even if they, you keep them up, keep them awake, try to tend to them. If they sit down for a while and put an ice bag on their head and they still having pain, I would take them to the ER and just get that checked out beforehand. Um, if they have no lingering effects after a few hours and you just keep them, keep monitoring them, um, making sure they're doing okay. Are they able to eat? You know, a lot of things that you get when you get a concussion sometimes is people getting nauseated. Um, they get sleepy sometimes. Some people are cognitively aren't aware where they are, like where they are in space of time. Like what time is it? What do you, why are you ask? Where do you know where you are? Mm-hmm. Sensitive to light, sensitive to noise. Those are some of the things that you can start paying attention to if it's a lingering concussion because that, you know, going back to what we talked about, when your brain is injured, it's trying to fix itself. And normally the things that you do involuntarily, like you listening, like you're listening to me now, that's involuntarily. You're not actually doing it. Your brain is doing it on its own. But if I have an injury, if you hear all these noises trying to filter out what's a high pitch versus a low pitch, what's a a close distance noise versus a long distance noise, Mm -hmm. your brain is filtering all of that out at one time. But if you got injured, it's trying to filter that all out and you're trying to function on watching TV or function on looking at certain things. So you're depleting this energy that you have in your brain trying to fix itself, but you're also depleting the energy to try to, does all the normal filters that we normally take for granted. It's trying to filter those things as well. How you look at things, how the light is coming into your eyes, how noise is coming into your ears is why you see some people have sensitivity to light or sensitivity to noise uh, once they have a concussion. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So let's say somebody gets hurt, say maybe they're, I don't know, like on a soccer field or something, and maybe the ambulance might take a few minutes to get there. If if somebody has ice available, should they use ice or if somebody, well, let's answer that first. I think if it's an injury, it depends on what type of injury it is. Like, like you said, you can bump your head and if they are unconscious you want to try to get them to a point where they're just in, in stable conditions you know you don't try to move them you don't try to do anything you try to make sure that they can be awake before you do any type of treatment to them okay. um, ice is usually used in the latter phases like once you realize they are conscious and able to move around and we don't have anything that can be a, a serious brain bleed um, then you can start worrying about putting the ice on within that you know 20 minutes of after the accident that happened or occurred uh, it's okay. not immediately right then and there but you want to make sure you put that on if they are conscious enough to be able to take them. Because sometimes you can make it, you got to think about it. Your brain is trying to deal with all of these functions. That ice can be super sensitive that you almost get a brain freeze and you don't want that to happen. So you okay. want to make sure you're aware of that. Good to know. That's important. Um, so what if that person who just got hit, what if they're on that borderline spot be kind of fading in and out of consciousness? Should you let them like, pass out or whatever or should you try to keep them awake is there a better option there um you, you try to like, your body's going to do what it's going to do you know it's going to control itself the best way it can and you to try to keep them awake or try to keep them functioning the best way possible um but you know if that's not you know try to keep them say hey i'm here 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 so you can they hear a voice they hear it constantly so they can know um but the body's going to function the best way it can to protect itself first um, yeah okay um, th- this is all really great information because like we said, you know, these, this stuff can happen to anybody at any time, unfortunately. Um, so I, I, I like to be prepared with this kind of stuff. Um, but let's talk about longer term uh, symptoms that might happen. Let's say somebody's too stubborn to go to the hospital after they had a hit to the head um, and two or three weeks later, or maybe even weeks or months later, 
they're still just not quite themselves. Um, that's, is that called post-concussion syndrome or is that something else? That, that is part of post-concussive syndrome, PCS. Um, when you have a lingering effect of that first initial injury, um, whether it's a car accident, whether it's you know playing a sport, whether it's the military, there's some lingering effect that may happen that your body doesn't recover to its normal 100% that it was before you went to that injury. So that is very um, hard to, you know, like normally normal general population would go told, told to go home, rest for a few days, but you don't look to get into another, you know, brain accident injury over that time frame for the general population. Mm-hmm. Um, when athletic world, even though your brain may feel like you symptomized, you're you're perfectly fine, you feel normal, you breathe and do all things, you, your brain is still recovering. It's like having, I think of it like you roll your ankle. You might be perfectly fine if you tape your ankle up and go back out there two weeks after you had a high ankle sprain, your ankle's still going to feel that lingering effect uh, over a time frame because it still hasn't completely healed all the way. And how the person heals, it varies between person to person. Like you may have, me and you may have had the same accident. My injury, I may recover faster than you. Those are some of the things that we're trying to understand is how does that happen? How does that, we all have the same injury. Why does one person recover better than the next person? Is it conditioning that you've been used to having with head injuries? Like you see in a boxer, when they say somebody has a you know last chance versus somebody has a good chance, and they don't go down as quick, are they conditioned enough to feel that? What's that genetics? Does genetics play a role in how you recover from you know these type of injuries? So it's it's interesting to try to understand. Yeah. So um, a little bit of what I talked about last week was a lot of just emphasizing you know it's it's inflammation happening in the brain and throughout the body. So anything that you can do that's going to be anti-inflammatory might be helpful, but what, um, you know, that inflammation might stick around for, like you said, depending on genetics and stuff for, you You just never know how long that inflammation is going to be kind of like a smoldering fire. So let's say for athletes who maybe, maybe they're listening right now and they played football 10 years ago and they're like, yeah, I think I probably did have some concussions, but I never did anything about it. Is there anything that they could do to see if it's still affecting them? Um. To see if it's affecting them, I mean, you can do your normal test. Well, I think, you know, things I'm very curious about is, is we get, as we get older playing athletics is we never have these long-term health follow-ups. You know, we never, mm-hmm. you know, even in our general population, you know, we test for everything. We test for blood pressure, we test for diabetes, we test for, but we don't do a lot of mental health tests. We don't do a lot of a, you know, I don't know if it's insurance-based because we don't do these things or whatever it may be, mm-hmm. but, you know, we can catch. Can we catch Alzheimer's early? Can we catch some of these, you know, late stage disease that we have mental brains? Can we catch them earlier? Well, we can try to maybe function and work on early onset, um, you know, things of that nature. Can we catch some of these things early? And I think some of the things that we take for granted as, you know, just the general population, I don't, I don't think it's just athletes. I think that we get yeah. conditioned to doing something. And when you don't do that, I think when you hear about athletes saying, well, he's having memory loss, well, you got to think about it like a military personnel or you as a teacher or you as that you're so routine and doing something that you're structured to do for 20 years that you do it or however long you've been doing it. And when you retire from being an athlete or a teacher or this, you start to forget things because you're not in that normal routine anymore. And I think that's part of what we start. We still make, I always say athletes lose memory loss because of concussion. I think it's because you've been conditioned to be a sharpshooter in certain ways of being an athlete that when you're not doing that anymore, 
you're not in that routine that you normally do. So you might come home every day and put your keys in a certain spot when you come home and from a practice or something like that. Well, if you don't go to practice and you put your keys on the dresser this time, and you're like, what do I do with my keys? Yeah. I think you your mind, but it's just not you're used to a routine that you've done for so long. And that's how I look at it, that we don't look at that mental health thing as far as following up with that. And one of the things that we tried to work with is part of my project that I wanted to start at University of Illinois was, can we do some of these things? Can we take some of these tests that we did at 19 and 20 when we first came to the university and follow them over a 15 to 20 year, whether they play tennis, whether they play track, whether they play football, and see where their lifestyles are now. And can we take another test to see the assessments of their brain and how they, you know, this person sat in there, this person went on to be professional, this person didn't do anything after college. Can we look at those lifestyles and see what effects those have on the brain over a 15, 20 year period? Yeah. Um, that's when you start getting some, some of that information, but we don't do enough. You know, who gets an MRI done and they're bringing it 40 just to get the MRI? You know, some people don't want to know. Some, people, some insurance companies yeah. don't want to pay for that um, just for a diagnostic test like that. Um, so it's, it's just interesting that it, as a football player, you worry about that because you hear so much in the news. Is Do I have brain issues? Do I have concussion? Do I have these long-term effects? We probably all do, you know, whether it's, you know, playing sports, whether it's doing anything else. Uh-huh. And can we treat those aspects? Those are the things that I'm interested in. Yeah, that is definitely, if, if you ever see new research coming out on that kind of stuff, I would love to see uh, links if you ever think to send it because that is interesting and I know you know there's not money to fund every kind of research but that would be really cool to see and I, I you know I think it could be helpful for the general population even if the studies are done on athletes and you know I think even as time goes on there we do have a greater population of people who used to be athletes and want to keep up some kind of athletic lifestyle or hobby so I think we do have more older adults getting injuries too because you do lose a little bit of stability or conditioning and injuries are prone to happen. Um, you know, even if you're trying to live, you know, stay active in some kind of sport. So I think that kind of research could be hugely helpful for people. And there's some places looking into it. I think I was a part of the, the Big Ten Consortium and they're looking at, you know, athletes now and looking along. They have a care project where they're looking at that along with the military, where they're looking at some of these long term effects now so there, there are projects out there that are starting to to look into this cool. um it's a three to four year period or if it's a you know 10 to 12 year period you have to start somewhere like you said funding is a, is a huge issue with that okay really cool this is uh related but moving a little bit farther away from directly talking about concussions but long-term health in athletes share some knowledge on what your thoughts are on that like what can athletes do to be smarter and former athletes I don't think, I think of it as the more I started looking into it, I think it was no different than as an athlete, you've become accustomed to, especially becoming an elite athlete and play professional level in your sport or whatever it may be, you become conditioned to a lot of things that you've, even since you were a little kid, you know, you the light spotlights on you and, and you have all these accolades, you have all these things. I think I get concerned with is the athlete who comes out of college and, and doesn't go to that next elite level they've accustomed to living a normal lifestyle. It's the athlete I get concerned about is who's been a professional athlete until they were 30 something, 35, mm-hmm. and they retire. Um, what does their mental health go from that? You know, because yeah. you haven't been accustomed to anything in, in your long, in your lifetime. I think some of the athletes who leave college after their first few years, may try to play semi-pro stuff or they continue picking up in their sport or they'll do some other things, but they've let that part of 
being that at the athlete part goal that they they don't get the accolades, they don't get their names in the paper. It's the athletes I get concerned about is those long-term health things is you become a brand name, your name is who you are and can you let that go? But I see that no different than being a, a professional teacher or being a, a young child actor where you've gotten accustomed to being seen as this great child actor and now they see you as an adult, like uh, you look different, you don't seem the same place, same person. Yeah. Um, tend to hold on to that. I call it that, you know, athletic identity, no different than any other type of identity. So I think yeah. teaching us, I think at a younger age, how to transition to certain things for the next part of your life. I think at a younger age, even when coming out of high school, when some of these kids know that their last year of playing sports may be in high school, transitioning them to the next stage of their life is being honest to them and being open to them say, hey, you might not be an elite athlete, but you could probably go play this or go do that. Um, and transitioning and same thing for college, you know, preparing them for that transition to the next step, whether it's preparing them, you know, for financial or educational aspects of things. I think the biggest thing that I, I concern myself with the long-term health is you've been, and especially for athletes, you know, who I played with is we've been the condition to eat in a certain way. And mm. it, you don't eat like, you know, you can probably eat 3000 calories when you're 18, 19, and, but you're putting out so much energy. And if you're an elite athlete, you can probably still do that. Yeah. But when you're 23 and 25 and you, you're still eating at the 3,000 calories, but you're not that elite athlete, does that long-term health change now? Because you're so used to eating at that high level, but you're not putting out the same high-level you know, exercise you know, part of it. Does yeah. that change? You start getting diabetes. You start getting high blood pressure in some of these bigger athletes um, where Definitely. it steps up a little bit more. So I think conditioning, training, and things of those things at a younger age, getting them to understand, hey, you might not go to the next level, so let's start preparing you for your eating habits or whatever it may be. Definitely. And I see that a lot uh, on social media in the bodybuilding world. You know, oh, also, I forgot to tell everybody, you came to my bodybuilding show that I did way back when I was like lean, lean. And, you know, that was that was a little bit hard for me mentally to make that shift. Um you know, counting every single gram of protein that I ate and the way that I was training and shifting into powerlifting where it's like, eat, eat, eat. You got to eat more all the time, <laughs> eat like 15 meals a day. And, you know, it has been, um, you know, even though I'm not at a, a high level of competition with either of those things, uh, that w it was it was hard for me mentally. And it, so I love that you mental mentioned the mental aspect because I and I see even I see that on social media with very, you know, professional level bodybuilders who have an injury or they stop to, you know, create a family and their lifestyle does drastically change. And um, some people have spoken openly about st struggling with the mental health side. But that's a really good point um, for anybody at any sport at any level because it does you know because I, I our society glorifies sports so much so i think that does uh fuel letting it become such a big part of people's identity at any level and i, and I think that's the the biggest part i take away from it because i look at you know when i keep hearing about you know everybody's talking about cte and i think the way the media has you know, I've, I've seen the research behind it. Yeah, I think CT has some change in brain function. But I think a lot of these athletes, we don't think about it. Like I said before, boxers have probably had CTE for years. We don't see them killing themselves at the rate that you've seen professional football players. But I think that we put it into the heads of some of these people and mentally that 
if you play the sport and you having some type of depression or anything like you got CTE, like that's the first thing that comes up, you know, you got CTE, but it might be that you just like be mentally stressed. You might be mentally, you know, depressed, or you just might have some other mental issues that had nothing to do with CTE. Yeah. You might have CTE, but I don't think those are the underlying things that we need to look into. So I, I get concerned about giving us false hope of saying that just because you play football, you're going to have CTE. I think you play anything, you can have CTE. But does it mean the symptomatic of having CT causes you to do some of the things that you are already dealing with? And that's the mental health aspects of things that you may have been an athlete that was so used to having your name in the paper and no, nobody talks to you. You feel like you're worth, worthless. You feel like you have nothing to live for. Does that mean that was CT or does that mean that your lifestyle changed, that you're not ready for that lifestyle change? And that's why I say you have to learn and condition and training these athletes and training them for that next step and that next phase because we don't really get into that very often. Yeah, that is such a good point. Hopefully, you know, it seems like there's more talk about mental health in general. So hopefully, you know, it'd be great to see programs implemented to, you know, even even maybe high school level, but definitely college level and beyond for athletes and how to how to keep, you know, how to stay on top of your mental health if you do start struggling with that. Yeah, it's hard because your identity is linked to that sometimes. And, and as, an, as a male athlete, and I'm saying female athletes don't have the same issues. You that that machismo, you know, if yes. you have some mental aspects of it that you're supposed to be this big, strong mental. And sometimes, mm -hmm. hey, it's not about being big and strong. It's about knowing yourself well enough. And are you comfortable with going to see a, a, a sports psychologist or going to sit down with somebody to say, I'm struggling with this? It has nothing to do with you can have everything in your, you know, in your, you know, that you can want. You can make the millions of dollars and have all the things you access and you still may be depressed. Yeah. Out and going to say, hey, I need some help still. You know, I have everything I've ever wanted and I'm still not happy or I'm still not complete. I don't feel complete. Yeah. And it's hard for some athletes to step out of that ledge and say, I want to go do this because then it's like, well, you're weak or you're this and that and that stigmatism sticks with you. So yeah, it, it is hard and difficult, but I think that's a shift I hope that changes over the next few years. Yeah, definitely. And you know, for anybody listening, you know, maybe you're not an athlete, but you might be a friend to one or your family member. So don't be afraid to have those conversations, especially if you notice a change in the their behavior or they're withdrawn or their moods are totally different. Have those conversations because that's only going to help things and not having the conversations is certainly not going to help. So I like that you pointed that out. And thank you so much for being here today. Um, I would love to have you back. I know there's lots more topics we could definitely talk about that you are s such an expert in, but thank you for sharing all of this, Kevin. Anytime you can have me, I appreciate it. Okay. To everybody listening, please share this with one person who came to mind while you are listening. And until next time, breathe, stay strong, and always celebrate victory. Celebrate victory.